everyone. Sounds like the mic's working, perfect. Now, I do have just a couple small slides for you today. So uh, what do you guys think? Should I move to the side here? Maybe blocking it a little bit. Why don't I do that? It's very good to see everyone. Uh, again, we'll be in Genesis chapter 11 this morning if you want to open your Bibles up there. All right, perfect. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we praise you. We thank you that you are building a kingdom, that you are building a church, and we, by your grace, are invited to take part. Not because we are worthy to be here, not because we are worthy to call you Father, but because you are a gracious God. So I ask this morning as you, we look at your word that you would open our eyes, that our hearts would be soft and obedient to your will, and that we would cast away all towers, all idols that we are seeking to build and cling to you, our one true hope and our one true home. We ask this in your precious name. You be, have the glory this morning. Amen. Why is it that no nation in the long history of the world has endured? Where are the kingdoms of Babylon, Egypt, Persia? Where are the empires of Caesar, Alexander, Genghis Khan, Napoleon? None of them have endured. All of them have fallen. And what about us? Why is it that so often the work of our own hands does not endure, but crumbles to dust before it is even finished, or not long after? This is an especially poignant question for us as we're living in very unstable times. Will the works of our nation, city, and own hands endure? In the days of Augustine of Hippo, a great tragedy shocked the Western world. Rome, the eternal city, the city that had an empire that spanned three continents, the, the empire that had ruled one-third of the world's population, had fallen. In the year 410, a tribe called the Vandals had come, sacked, looted, and destroyed much of the city. And so people were asking the same questions we would ask if something terrible like that happened to one of our great cities. How could this possibly happen? Where was God in this? And Augustine, being the wise and sensitive pastor that he was, wanted to help people answer this question. And so he wrote a book, a book that has become famous in Western literature, a book called The City of God. And in this book, Augustine says that since the beginning of history, two parallel societies and two parallel cities, as he calls them, have existed. An earthly city, which many have called the city of man, and a heavenly city, which Augustine called the city of God. And he argues that if you understand these two cities, it's the key to understanding ourselves, our history, and our future. So this is what we're going to look at today. Why do we rise and why do we fall? So today we'll be looking at a tale of two cities, and our text is Genesis 11, 1 to 9. And the big idea of this passage, friends, is in the story of the Tower of Babel, we see that all our efforts to build lasting good in this world will crumble unless God himself 
is the builder of our city. And we will see this in four points. We want to build a lasting good, but we build with the wrong materials. God in grace frustrates our plans, and God in love calls us into his own city. So here in the story of Babel, we have a story at the beginning of the Bible, at the beginning of Genesis, and at the beginning of history itself. The story takes place in Shinar, what today most historians would refer to as Sumer or Mesopotamia. And indeed, this is the place where many of the very first cities were built. We know this. But this is not just the story of the building of one city. In fact, the author here skillfully uses this story as a satire, a type, a model for all human culture building from this point forward. This story is history in a nutshell. And in this story is Augustine's city of man. When we first start reading the story, though, it doesn't strike us all as that bad. In fact, there's a lot we can sympathize with in this story. Because the story starts by reminding us. There we go. And we'll do one more, uh, Steve, if you're in the back there. And if, you, uh, you, if the mouse isn't on the main screen, we can do that. It might just be slow. Thank you, guys. We all want to build a lasting good. So people have always been trying to build a better world, a more secure, good life for themselves. We're no different, and the people at Babel were no different. So in verses 4 to 5, I'll read again. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Their aim is to build a city with a tower. And that doesn't seem all that bad, does it? We do that every day all across the world. That's not an evil thing in and of itself. And why do they want this? Well, let me summarize with three reasons for you. They want it for security, they want it for significance, and they want it for spirituality. So let's look at these. First, security. The safety of a city tucked behind its walls would give people a secure home, a secure existence. Their homes and businesses could flourish without fear. And importantly, rather than everyone being scattered, everyone would be gathered into one place. But also, significance. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They want to be well-known. They want to have a good reputation. They want to have a legacy they want to be respected. And last, spirituality. These people aren't a godless society. In fact, if you read carefully, you'll notice God is actually a big part of their plans. This goal becomes clear when you look at what they want to build, a tower with its top to the heavens. And most scholars agree that in this time and in this place, when they talk about a tower with its top in the heavens, they can mean one thing and one thing only, and that is a ziggurat. So just to give us some context, security, significance, spirituality, I'm actually going to show you a couple quick pictures, which is why we have this today. So uh, here you have a picture of a ziggurat. Ziggurats can be found all over this part of the world. And what they were, as you can see, is huge stepped pyramids. You can almost think of it like a multi-layered wedding cake built out of brick and stone. 
Ziggurats, though, didn't have anything inside them. They served one purpose and one purpose only, to be a giant stairway. At the bottom of the ziggurat was usually some kind of temple where the people would worship, and at the top of the ziggurat was a room for the deity, for the god of the city. And they would put a bed in there, and they would put a table with food in case the god wanted to come down and visit. So this is a picture of the ziggurat at Babylon, which interestingly enough in ancient inscriptions is actually called the Tower of Babel. And you can see some size comparisons down there at the bottom. Pretty big, half the size of the Great Pyramids. And just as a little more context here, this is a partially reconstructed ziggurat in, at Ur in Iraq. And um, you can see it's only like halfway built up. There's people at the top just to give you a sense of scale. So these were massive structures. And uh, again, they took place uh, all over in this part of the world. In fact, this ziggurat at Ur is the same town that Abraham and his family comes from. So these people didn't want to leave God out of their project. In a way, they were inviting God into their city. God himself will be honored by our tower. These were spiritual people. So what is the problem? What is wrong with wanting a secure life? A people to call your own, a good reputation, a lasting legacy and to be a spiritual person on top of it. These all sound like good goals, don't they? Nothing is wrong with any of these things in and of themselves, but soon we are going to see that there really is a big problem. Now, I know many of you will be shocked to learn this, but this is a presidential election year. We have those elections coming up quicker than we realize. And there are so many differences between the two major parties, it's very easy to just see them miles apart, isn't it? But if we look closely at both parties, there's a lot that is actually very similar. And let me explain what I mean. If you look at each party's platform, if you listen carefully to each party's candidate, each party is promising essentially the same thing. What do I mean? First, they're all promising security. Our platform is the best way to have a just, fair, and flourishing society. They both say they want that. Significance. Stick with us if you want to be on the right side of history. Stick with us if you want to make America great. And then spirituality. Just do a quick internet search for both parties, and you will see many people in both parties touting their spiritual credentials, offering prayers. Clearly, they believe any higher power must be on their side. Now, these are some grand desires and lofty goals, and I'm not trying at all to minimize the importance of parties, the importance of elections, the importance of who we put in power in the country, not at all. But let's focus in on the similarities here. Either party winning, do you really think they're going to fully deliver on what they promise? Do you really think that either party is going to give us the security, significance, and spirituality we all hope for in this country? I think we all know the answer to that question is no, and why do we know that? Well, didn't we just do this four years ago? Haven't we been doing this for the past 300 years? What's happened? Where did it go wrong? Why haven't we succeeded in this goal yet? And every aspiring leader since the beginning of time has made these three same exact promises to their people, and none of them have delivered. Why is this? 
Why, like Babel, are we always seeking these things but never fully attaining them? Well, it is because, like Babel, we have a problem. And our problem is that we build with the wrong materials. So the author draws attention to an interesting detail in the story of Babel in verse 3. Let's read that again. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So the writer stops to comment on the materials they used. And for us, this doesn't seem very important, does it? Like, why why do we care what they built with? Uh, But back then, it was actually a really big deal. The Babylites were using cutting-edge technology. A baked brick, carefully fired, was much stronger and more durable than any old mud brick. And with these baked bricks, they could build bigger, stronger, higher, better than ever before. So this was no small thing. This was a big achievement. But for the Israelites reading this story, there's a bit of comedy going on. Most Israelites would probably have a chuckle as they heard this. Because if you go to Israel, they don't build with mud bricks, baked or not. They build with stone. There's plenty of stone in Israel, unlike in Mesopotamia. And so the Israelites are probably thinking to themselves, how can you possibly want to build a lasting structure and society on mud? Stone is the only way to build something that is going to endure. You see, in the Israelite mind, Babel was built with shoddy materials. And the problem with the project of Babel and the reason why all of our efforts fail to build a lasting good is they are built with materials that cannot last. So first, while Babel was built to bring security, Babel was built out of self-centered fear. The people of ba- built Babel because they were afraid. They didn't want to be scattered. And many people reading this passage notice the fact that in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 9, God had commanded both Adam and Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And it was God's desire for the whole earth to be filled with his blessing and his rule. And the Babelites, perhaps, are they disobeying a command by God to go, to spread, to scatter? It's possible. Personally, I'm not 100% convinced that that's clear in the text. But even if it isn't, it's very clear that what are the Babelites doing? They are gathering, and why are they gathering? To protect themselves, to protect their own interests. Instead of trusting in God and his power as their security, they are trusting in their own power. The security of Babel is built on self-centeredness and fear, and we can never have a truly flourishing society that is built on fear. The second problem is instead of finding significance in God, Babel is built in self-exalting pride. So even though Babel had this great building dedicated to God, Babel was not built for the name of God. And the makers are very clear about this. This was not for the glory of God. This was for the glory of the builders. God was an afterthought. And we see their pride in the way they describe this. Let's build a tower with its top into the heavens. Let's reach the sky. Let's reach heaven itself with our greatness. And we also see pride in the promise of technology, don't we? This new technology of baked brick is going to solve our problems. We'll build bigger, we'll build better, we'll build stronger. Aren't we often lulled by the promises of technology in our society? We've had so many technological innovations in the past 200, 300 years. 
Which one of them has solved our problems? Which one of them has really led to a change in human society or the human heart? They've led to lots of changes, but the problem with technology is technology can only magnify and extend what is already here. It cannot change us. No technology could fix the proud, selfish, and fearful hearts of the Babylites. And all it did was turn their sin and pride and selfishness into epic proportions. The significance of Babel is built on self-centered pride, and we can never have a just and flourishing society when we are at the center of the world, everyone else is pushed to the margins, and God is placed at our feet. And this brings us to the third point, because the third problem is instead of letting God set the standards for spirituality, Babel was built to bring gods to our level. And perhaps I think this is the worst sin of all of the Babylites. While the Babylites seem to be honoring God, do they ever ask him what he really wants? Do they ever consult with him? God, would you like us to build a temple to you? Would you like us to build a stairway to heaven? Do they ever sit down and say, God, whatever your will is, we will do it? No. The tower was not built to worship God, but to domesticate him, to make God like us. Instead of seeking to follow God in his plans, the Babelites are calling on God to join them in their efforts. They want a God who will smile down on them, on their efforts. They want a God who will join them, who will bless them. A God who will make their city and their tower his home. Do you see how twisted this is? Do you see what an affront this is to the glory, authority, independence, and majesty of God? And in this story is the story of self-made, man-made, man-centered religion. History is filled with great religious projects, ceremonies, passion. In fact, the history of Christianity is filled with those things. But religions may fill our lives and our bookshelves and our cities. But if you have a God, and this is important, who agrees with you always, who never challenges you, who never makes any demands on you, you don't really worship God. You really worship yourself. And this is the danger in religion. Religion can lull us into a false sense of security. Just look out our door. Just look at that giant temple in our backyard. God must surely be with us. And nothing was further from the truth. False spirituality is built on the will and the plans of humans, not the will and the plans of God. So you see, on the outside, the project of Babel looked noble, magnificent, well-intentioned, But the desire for security, significance, and spirituality was really rotten to the core. When you think of wonders of the ancient world, when someone says a world wonder, what's one of the first things that that comes to most of our minds? I know for me it's the pyramids, right? The pyramids, the classic wonder of the ancient world. And they're great, and and um, it's a wonderful example of man's innovation, of technology, But here's a question. Why don't we think of the Tower of Babel? Why don't we think of ziggurats even, in general? Well, the ziggurats are all gone. There's very little left. 
Because you see, when you go to a ziggurat and you peel back the front layers of the bricks and the, and the fired bricks and you pull that back, guess what's on the inside? Nothing but dirt. The ziggurats are filled to the brim with dirt. And so when those mud bricks over time start to erode away and wash away and lose their power, guess what happens? The rain comes and the flood comes and the wind comes and all of a sudden the ziggurat just starts to disappear. That's why we don't think about ziggurats anymore. That's why most of them are gone today. But a pyramid, what is a pyramid built out of? Solid stone, a mountain of stone. Here they stand thousands of years later while the ziggurats have crumbled to dust. Because you see, friends, just like Babel, we will never be able to build a lasting good unless we build with the right materials. And this is not just a message for the leaders and the political elite, but this is a message for our individual lives. How many of us build our lives around security? What we are really seeking is to secure a good life, a safe time, comfort. We don't live primarily in trust and dependence on God. We don't live for the good of our neighbors. We live in self-centered fear for the good of ourselves and the good of our tribe. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be safe and secure, but I think you see the point. How many of us build our lives around significance? We are trying to make a name for ourselves. We want to be respected. We want to be well-known. We want to be remembered, leave a legacy, be loved. And there is nothing wrong with any of those things. But really, we are just building a world of self-centered pride. We want to be the center of attention. We want to be the center of the world. And God's name and God's glory are just an afterthought, if they're even thought about at all. And how many of us have deluded ourselves into thinking that God is pleased with us? that God smiles down on everything we do, that God approves of every desire in your heart, and we have never really stopped, bowed down before him, and listened to his word and asked him, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to build? How many of us are building our own towers of Babel? How many of us are living in the city of man, even as we sit in church, or even as we listen over the internet. We have spent half the story looking at the people of Babel and what they do, but now comes the center of the story, the climax. If you study the whole story through and the way it's written, it's actually beautiful in the way it's structured. Everything's in parallel, almost, if you will, like building a ziggurat. Let me explain. At the beginning and the end of the story, we have whole earth, whole earth, Come let us, come let us, build, build, city, city. And guess what's at the center? Guess what's at the top? This is the pivot point of the whole story. And the Lord came down. And in his coming, we will see two things. God's gracious judgment on the city of man and God's gracious answer to the city of man. So first, we'll see... That God in grace frustrates our plans. Let's read verse 5 and 6 again. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So when God comes down, first we see that God sees. He sees our plans. He sees our outcome. He knows what this is really about. And the text is full of this great dramatic irony in the story. So the ambition of the Babylonians was to build a great tower with its top reaching to the heavens. Yet we get the impression that God has to stoop. He has to look. He has to come down. Oh, look at that. Look at that cute little tower that the Babylonians built. They had this great ambition, this great thinking of themselves. But compared to the glory and the majesty of God, this is nothing. Have you ever looked at a picture of the world from space? <laughs> and sometimes people get all excited and say, look, you can see the pyramids, or look, you can see this, or look, you can see that. But what strikes you when you look at the pictures from space is not how big those things are, but how small they are, how insignificant. God's perspective in this story is like a picture from space, a powerful and humbling reminder that even our greatest projects are insignificant compared to him. But God doesn't just see the tower, he sees the hearts of the Babylonians. He sees the project for what it really is, and he sees its ultimate result. In verse 6, he says, This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And here's what God sees, friends. God sees that fueled by fear and pride, drunk with success and power, and convinced that God is with you, Babel will only be the start of their evil. United in wickedness, the sky will be the limit to the evil they will do. And this story reminds us that unity for unity's sake and success and power for power's sake is not a good in and of itself. Just as you can be united in right, you can also be united in wrong. And sometimes the whole city can be with you. Let's talk about China for a minute. If you look at the history of China, China was a great and powerful nation for much of its history, but then there was a rapid decline towards the end, towards modern times. And for most of this past century, China was overall a very poor country, uh, a country where there was widespread poverty, lots of problems. But in the past 40 years, China has made some incredible achievements. Their economy has been the fastest growing in the world. They have lifted more than 800 million people out of poverty. China has become one of the world's largest economies. It has one of the world's most powerful militaries. And they did all this while having a, the largest population in the world quadruple the size of the United States. Yet for all of these achievements, why would most of us not want to live in China? Well, China is a unified state. It's run by one single political party, the Communist Party of China. And we see here that unity can lead to great power and achievements, but it can also lead to great evils. Let me mention a couple. The suppression of dissent, suppression of minorities, suppression of human rights, suppression of the freedom of religion. We realize that in unity, there can be great evil and unity can be dangerous. So God sees what the Babylonians have started and what it will lead to, and God does something about it. The second point is God frustrates their plans. 
And again, here we have irony. God comes down. He does come down, just like the Babylonians wanted. But the result is exactly the opposite of what they had hoped for. Come, let us go down. Let us confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And what is the result? So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, in this passage, some say when God says, let us, that this is a reference to the Trinity. And that's certainly possible. I think it's more likely here, based on the context in the Old Testament, that God is speaking to his angels and his divine ruling council. He is asking them to join him in judgment on the Babylonians. And in one last ironic turn, all that the Babylonians fear come to pass. They are scattered just as they fear. And they do make a name for themselves, but instead of a reputation of honor, it is a reputation of shame. With the Babylonians' language confused, they no longer have the unity or understanding to continue their project. Their city and tower is abandoned. And here's where I think we should stop and talk about the name Babel. Now, it's interesting, the word Babel actually occurs 260 times in the Old Testament. Yet it is only translated into English twice as the word Babel. Do you know what every other occurrence of the word Babel is translated as? Babylon. Babylon, one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. Babylon, the empire that would one day lead Israel into exile. Babylon, the prostitute of revelation that persecutes the people of God. Do you see, friends? Throughout the Bible, the beginning, the middle, and the end stands Babylon, always rising in opposition to God and always destined to be cast down and destroyed by the one true ruler of this universe. And the writer here does an interesting play on words for us. In the language of the Babylonians, Babel means gate of God. That's what this place was supposed to be. But in Hebrew, the word Babel means confusion. Babel sought to make a name for itself. Babylon sought to be the center of the world and the gate of heaven. But all Babylon has given is confusion and destruction. Today, we don't remember the name of the Tower of Babel because of its great achievement. We remember the name of the Tower of Babel because of its failure. So we, all of us, I think, know the story of the Titanic, don't we? And why the Titanic is famous. And the fact that the Titanic had a famous moniker. It was called the unsinkable ship, right? Yet no one remembers the Titanic for being unsinkable. The name that was supposed to bring it fame has turned into a name of shame. And so it is with Babel. Their pride became their fall. And so Babel offers a warning to every human-centered society, but it also offers a warning to every human-centered life. God sees that what is really in our hearts, God knows the motives behind what we are doing. God knows the outcome of our plans, and sometimes God does frustrate our plans so they come to nothing. The story of Babel is a reminder that when we build in this world, we build with mud and clay. Even the greatest projects will eventually fail. Sin is the reason why no society has ever lasted and no life has been, ever been able to build a lasting good. 
But don't forget, friends, that God frustrating their plans was an act of judgment, but it was also an act of grace. God stopped their plans not because only it would bring evil on others, but it would also bring evil on themselves. God did not want that evil to spread throughout the world. God wanted to stop it. And let me ask you a question. Has God ever changed your plans? Has God ever frustrated your desires? Has the life you built ever come crashing down around you? Could it be, perhaps, in this situation, in the grace, the knowledge, and the sovereignty of God, that it was an act of grace? Could it be that giving you what you wanted would have ruined you? Could it be that the security and significance you were hoping for and longing for and thought it would give you would not have resulted? Could it be that God is trying to stop you from building towers in the mud so that you can look for something better? Sometimes he does. Because, friends, we all want to build a lasting good, but we build with the wrong materials. So God in grace frustrates our plans. And now we come to our last major point here. God in love calls us into his own city. See, this is the beautiful thing about Scripture, isn't it? There's not just one story. The story of Babel, it might end here. The story of Babylon doesn't. But God's story does not. God's work does not. God has an answer to the Tower of Babel. And just like the theme Babylon occurs throughout the beginning, middle, and end of Scripture, so too does God's answer. I want to throw you three, show you three powerful examples of this. So first, God comes down to bless us in Abraham. So God's first answer to the Tower of Babel comes right in the next chapter, and I don't think that's a mistake. The story of Abraham. Listen to what God says to Abraham and see if you can make any connections to the story of Babel. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The connections are huge. Instead of Abraham building himself a stairway to God, God comes down to Abraham in grace, undeserving in his sovereignty. Instead of Abraham fighting for security in this life and significance, God promises to give him these blessings. Abraham, I will be your shield. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Abraham, I will make your name great. Abraham, I will give you a people to belong to. I will give you a land to call you home. And instead of just blessing Abraham, instead of keeping this all in one family, in one location, what is God's plan? Why is God's plan greater than the plan of Babel? Because he wants to use these blessings to spread across the entire earth. That is God's plan. The city of man turns inward to protect itself, but the city of God turns outward to bless. And the author of Hebrews summarizes this story beautifully for us. In 11 verses 8 through 10, he says this, By faith, 
Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. For he was looking, listen to this, forward to the city that has foundations whose builder and designer is God. God himself comes down to call us out of the city of man into a relationship with him to find him as our blessing, to trust in him to be our blessing, and to be a blessing to others. In the beginning of the Bible, God comes down to bless us. In the middle of the Bible, God comes down to unite us as one people at Pentecost. In the story of Pentecost, we have a complete reversal of the story of Babel. Again, God comes down As tongues of fire descend on the fledgling church, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in many languages they never knew before. And in the power of the Spirit, instead of confusion, there was understanding. Instead of division, there was unity. And the message of the gospel was proclaimed, as Luke says, to every nation under heaven. That was intentional, friends. By the power of the Spirit, Luke knew what he was doing when he wrote those words. It is God's plan to unite all people again one day. It is God's plan to end division and confusion. And it is the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he has done, that has the power to do it. So friends, God calls us out of the city of man into a new people. No longer divided, but united in Christ proclaiming his great name. God himself comes down to bless us. God himself comes down to unite us into a new people. And at the end of the Bible, God comes down to bring us the home we have always wanted in the new Jerusalem. In the last chapters of Revelation, Babylon falls for the last time. Revelation 18, starting in verse 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. But then just two chapters later, the city of God appears in all its splendor. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. At the end of history, the city of man, its power, wealth, pleasure will come to nothing, and the city of God will be revealed in its glory." We can waste our lives trying to build ourselves a temporary city out of mud, but God himself is preparing for those who would trust in him an eternal city. 
This will be the city your hearts long for, friends. Did you ever wonder why no place ever truly felt like home? Because it's not supposed to. This is not your home. God is preparing for you the home you have always wanted. And the home won't need to be fixed. And the home won't need to be sold. And the home won't get cluttered. And the family won't be divided by sin, dispute, and division. God will get the glory. We will rejoice. God will give us the home we've always wanted. And so as we've looked at the whole arc of history, the city of God and the city of man, C.S. Lewis summarizes this whole idea really nicely for us. So let me read what he says. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions are devised. But each time, something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and the cruel people to the top, and it all slides back into misery and ruin. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel of our spirits. He is the fuel our spirits burn. He is the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself. That is the key to history. So the key to history is this, friends. The answer to all your failures and all of our failures is this. We are called to stop believing in the lie of Babel. We are called to come out of that city and come to the only one who can give us happiness and peace. God calls you out of this earthly city to trust in his promises and live a life in devotion to him. God calls you out of the city to be a part of a new people, the church, who will perform his will and spread his blessings over all the earth, and God calls you to put your hope in his eternal and glorious city, which he is preparing for you. And one day, there you will find your rest and your home. And perhaps, friends, God may be calling you out of that city and into his city for the first time today. Praise God. We praise God with you. We want to join you in that journey. We want to pray with you. We want to support you. Or perhaps, like me, you just need to be reminded of God's glory you need to be convicted of how you build piles of mud for yourself and call them life. And we need to recenter ourselves and recenter our hopes in God, His glory, and His kingdom. That is what the story of Babel does. So, in the story of the Tower of Babel, we have seen that all our efforts to build lasting good in this world will crumble unless God Himself builds our city. The tallest building in North Korea is a monument to shame. So let me show you a picture, actually. Here is a picture of the Ryuyong Hotel in North Korea in its capital of Pyongyang. It was begun in 1987 and designed to house 3,000 hotel rooms as well as five revolving restaurants at the top. However, when the Soviet Union, who was the biggest funder of this project, collapsed 
1991, the project was left unfinished. While the structure reached its height in 1992, it stood windowless and hollow for another 16 years. Finally, in 2008, the building was covered in metal and glass, and eventually, 100,000 LED panels were put there to show elaborate video propaganda shows every day. Yet, isn't it ironic that the building that is meant to be a symbol of power and prosperity, a building that now hosts colorful pictures praising the regime of this country, is really an empty husk? On the inside, it is dark, barren, unfinished, and unoccupied. What was meant to be a monument to their success and culture is now an infamous monument to its failure. And it shows that this hotel has a nickname just like Babel. Babel's nickname was Confusion. This structure's nickname is the Hotel of Doom. Babel is a hotel of doom. It is a reminder, friends, not to tie ourselves and our hopes too close to this world. It is a call to be on the right side of history. It is a call to join God in his project. The Babelites said, let us build. Christ himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Which city do you live in? Which city is your hope founded in? The city of God or the city of man? So let's close with the words of the author of Hebrews. For we here have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let's close in prayer. Father, we read this story and we realize in our hearts, even those of us who have been maybe following you our whole lives realize, or most of our lives, that our hearts are not very different from the Babylites. We crave security and we fight for it. We crave to be well-known, to have a reputation, to last, to be important. And often we delude ourselves into thinking that our spirituality is enough. But you in grace change our minds. You in grace come down and see how barren our hearts really are. And what, how pitiful the structure of our lives is apart from you. So we ask you to come. We ask you to reveal what's inside of us to us. We ask you to humble us, to help us to build, to build, to let you be the builder of our lives, to not center our lives on these little things. God, you give us these little things. These little things are good. These little things are meant to be enjoyed and meant to be blessings, but they are not meant to be our center. They are not meant to be our hope. Let us put our hope in your kingdom for the first time, for the thousandth time. And may we be a people, a church that is faithful in being built by your son, Jesus. In his precious name we pray, amen.